0: CHAPTER SEVEN, PART TWO OF THE RAINBOW TRAIL BY ZANE GRAY THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. SAGO LILIES, PART TWO Next morning Joe Lake returned and imparted news that was perturbing to Shefford. Reports of Shad had come in to Stonebridge from different Indian villages. Joe was not inclined to linger long at the camp, and favored taking the trail with the pack-train. Shefford discovered that he did not want to leave the valley, and the knowledge made him reflective. That morning he did not go into the village and stayed in camp alone. A depression weighed upon him. It was dispelled, however, early in the afternoon by the sight of a slender figure in white swiftly coming down the path to the spring. He had an appointment with Mary to go see the sago lilies. Everything else slipped his mind. Mary wore the long black hood that effectually concealed her face. It made of her a woman, a Mormon woman, and strangely belied the lithe form and the braid of gold hair. Good day, she said, putting down her bucket. Do you still want to go to see the lilies? Yes, replied Shepherd with a short laugh. Can you climb? I'll go where you go. Then she set off under the cedars, and Shefford stalked at her side. He was aware that Ness Bega watched them walk away. This day, so far at least, Shefford did not feel talkative, and Mary had always been one who mostly listened. They came at length to a place where the wall rose in low, smooth swells, not steep, but certainly at an angle Shefford would not of his own accord have attempted to scale. Light, quick, and sure as a mountain sheep, Mary went up the first swell to an offset above. Shefford, in amaze and admiration, watched the little moccasins as they flashed and held on to the smooth rock. When he essayed to follow her, he slipped and came to grief. A second attempt resulted in like failure. Then he backed away from the wall to run forward fast and up the slope, only to slip halfway up and fall again." He made light of the incident, but she was solicitous. When he assured her he was unhurt, she said he had agreed to go where she went. "'But I'm not a bird,' he protested. "'Take off your boots, then you can climb. When we get over the wall it'll be easy,' she said. In his stocking feet he had no great difficulty walking up the first bulge of the walls, and from there she led him up the strange waves of wind-worn rock. He could not attend to anything save the red polished rock under him, and so saw little. The ascent was longer than he would have imagined, and steep enough to make him pant. But at last a huge round summit was reached. From here he saw down into the valley where the village lay, but for the lazy columns of blue smoke curling up from the pinions the place would have seemed uninhabited. The wall on the other side was about level with the one upon which he stood. Beyond rose other walls and cliffs, up and up, to the great towering peaks between which the green and black mountain loomed. Facing the other way, Shefford had only a restricted view. There were low crags and smooth stone ridges, between which were aisles green with cedar and pinion. Shefford's companion headed toward one of these, and when he had followed her a few steps, he could no longer see down into the valley. The Mormon village where she lived was as if it were lost, and when it vanished, Shefford felt a difference. Scarcely had the thought passed when Mary removed the dark hood. Her small head glistened like gold in the sunlight. Shefford caught up with her and walked at her side, but could not bring himself at once deliberately to look at her. They entered a narrow, low-walled lane, where cedars and pinions grew thickly, their fragrance heavy in the warm air, and flowers began to show in the grassy patches. "'This is Indian paintbrush,' she said, pointing to little low scarlet flowers. A gray sage-bush with beautiful purple blossoms she called Purple Sage, another bush with yellow flowers she named buckbrush and there were vermilion cacti and low, flat mounds of lavender daisies, which she said had no name. A whole mossy bank was covered with lace-like green leaves and tiny blossoms the color of violets, which she called Loco. Loco? Is this what makes horses go crazy when they eat it? he asked. It is indeed, she said, laughing. When she laughed, it was impossible not to look at her. She walked a little in advance. Her white cheek and temple seemed framed in the gold of her hair. How white her skin! But it was like pearl, faintly veined and flushed. The profile, clear-cut and pure, appeared cold, almost stern. He knew now that she was singularly beautiful, though he had yet to see her full face. They walked on. Quite suddenly, the lane opened out between two rounded bluffs, and Shefford looked down upon a grander and more awe-inspiring scene than ever he had viewed in his dreams. What appeared to be a green mountainside sloped endlessly down to a plain, and that rolled and billowed away to a boundless region of strangely carved rock. The greatness of the scene could not be grasped in a glance. The slope was long, the plain not as level as it seemed to be on first sight. Here and there, round red rocks, isolated and strange, like lonely castles, rose out of the green. Beyond the green, all the earth seemed naked, showing smooth, glistening bones. It was a formidable wall of rock that flung itself up in the distance, carved into a thousand canyon and walls and domes and peaks, and there was not a straight nor broken nor a jagged line in all that wildness. The color low down was red, dark blue, and purple in the clefts, yellow upon the heights, and in the distance rainbow-hued, a land of curves and color. Shefford uttered an exclamation. "'That's Utah,' said Mary. "'I come often to sit here. You see that winding blue line, there? That's San Juan Canyon, and the other dark line, that's Escalante Canyon.' They wind down into this great purple chasm, way over here to the left, and that's the Grand Canyon. They say not even the Indians have been in there. Shefford had nothing to say. The moment was one of subtle and vital assimilation. Such places as this to be unknown to men. What strength, what wonder, what help, what glory, just to sit there an hour, slowly and appallingly to realize. Something came to Shefford from the distance, out of the purple canyon and from those dim, wind-worn peaks. He resolved to come here to this promontory again and again, alone and in humble spirit, and learn to know why he had been silenced, why peace pervaded his soul. It was with this emotion upon him that he turned to find his companion watching him. Then for the first time he saw her face fully and was thrilled that Chance had reserved the privilege for this moment. It was a girl's face, he saw, flower-like, lovely, and pure as a Madonna's, and strangely, tragically sad. The eyes were large, dark gray, the color of the sage. They were as clear as the air which made distant things close, and yet they seemed full of shadows, like a ruffled pool under midnight stars. They disturbed him, her mouth had the sweet curves and redness of youth but it showed bitterness pain and repression where are the sago lilies he asked suddenly farther down it's too cold up here for them come she said he followed her down a winding trail down and down till the green plain rose to blot out the scrawled wall of rock down into a verdant canyon where a brook made swift music over stones where the air was sultry and hot, laden with the fragrant breath of flower and leaf. This was a canyon of summer, and it bloomed. The girl bent and plucked something from the grass. "'Here's a white lily,' she said. "'There are three colors. The yellow and pink ones are deeper down in the canyon.' Shefford took the flower and regarded it with great interest. He had never seen such an exquisite thing. It had three large petals, curving cup-like, of a whiteness purer than new-fallen snow, and a heart of rich warm gold. Its fragrance was so faint as to be almost indistinguishable, yet of a haunting, unforgettable sweetness. And even while he looked at it, the petals drooped, and their whiteness shaded, and the gold paled. In a moment the flower was wilted. "'I don't like to pluck the lily,' said Mary. They die so swiftly. Shefford saw the white flowers everywhere in the open, sunny places along the brook. They swayed with stately grace in the slow, warm wind. They seemed like three-pointed stars shining out of the green. He bent over one with a particularly lofty stem, and after a close survey of it, he rose to look at her face. His action was plainly one of comparison. She laughed and said it was foolish for the women to call her the sago lily. She had no coquetry. She spoke as she would have spoken of the stones at her feet. She did not know that she was beautiful. Shefford imagined there was some resemblance in her to the lily, the same whiteness, the same rich gold, and more striking than either, a strange, rare quality of beauty, of life, intangible as something fleeting, the spirit, that had swiftly faded from the plucked flower. Where had the girl been born? What had her life been? Shefford was intensely curious about her. She seemed as different from any other woman he had known, as this rare canyon lily was different from the tame flowers at home. On the return up the slope she outstripped him. She climbed lightly and tirelessly. When he reached her upon the promontory there was a stain of red in her cheeks and her expression had changed. "'Let's go back up over the rocks,' she said. "'I've not climbed for... for so long.' "'I'll go where you go,' he replied. Then she was off, and he followed. She took to the curves of the bare rocks and climbed. He sensed a spirit released in her. It was so strange, so keen, so wonderful to be with her, and when he did catch her, he feared to speak, lest he break his mood.' Her eyes grew dark and daring, and often she stopped to look away across the wavy sea of stones to something beyond the great walls. When they got high the wind blew her hair loose, and it flew out a golden stream with the sun bright upon it. He saw that she changed her direction, which had been in line with the two peaks, and now she climbed toward the heights. They came to a more difficult ascent where the stone still held to the smooth curves, yet was marked by steep bulges and slants and crevices. Here she became a wild thing. She ran, she leaped. She would have left him far behind had he not called. Then she appeared to remember him and waited. Her face had now lost its whiteness. It was flushed, rosy, warm. Where did you ever learn to run over rocks this way? He panted. All my life I've climbed, she said. Ah, it's good to be up on the walls again, to feel the wind, to see. Thereafter, he kept close to her, no matter what the effort. He would not miss a moment of her, if he could help it. She was wonderful. He imagined she must be like an Indian girl, or a savage who loved the lofty places and the silence. When she leaped, she uttered a strange, low, sweet cry of wildness and exultation. Shefford guessed she was a girl freed from her prison, forgetting herself, living again youthful hours. She did not forget him. She waited for him at the bad places, lent him a strong hand, and sometimes let it stay long in his clasp. Tireless and agile, sure-footed as a goat, fleet and wild, she leaped and climbed and ran until Shefford marveled at her. This adventure was indeed fulfillment of a dream. Perhaps she might lead him to the treasure at the foot of the rainbow. But that thought, sad with memory, daring forth from its grave, was irrevocably linked with a girl who was dead. He could not remember her in the presence of this wonderful creature, who was as strange as she was beautiful. When Shefford reached for the brown hand stretched forth to help him in a leap, When he felt its strong clasp, the youth and vitality and life of it, he had the fear of a man who was running toward a precipice and who could not draw back. This was a climb, a lark, a wild race to the Mormon girl, bound now in the village, and by the very freedom of it she betrayed her bonds. To Shefford it was also a wild race, but toward one sure goal he dared not name. They went on and at length hand in hand even where no steep step or wide fissure gave reason for the clasp but she seemed unconscious they were nearing the last height a bare eminence when she broke from him and ran up the smooth stone when he surmounted it she was standing on the very summit her arms wide her full breast heaving her slender body straight as an indian's her hair flying in the wind and blazing in the sun She seemed to embrace the West, to reach for something afar, to offer herself to the wind and distance. Her face was scarlet from the exertion of the climb. Her broad brow was moist. Her eyes had the piercing light of an eagle's, though now they were dark. Shefford instinctively grasped the essence of this strange spirit, primitive and wild. She was not the woman who had met him at the spring. She had dropped some side of her with that Mormon hood, and now she stood totally strange. She belonged up here, he divined. She was part of that wildness. She must have been born and brought up in loneliness, where the wind blew and the peaks loomed and silence held dominion. The sinking sun touched the rim of the distant wall, and as if in parting, regret shone with renewed golden fire and the girl was crowned, as with a glory. Shefford loved her then, realizing it. He thought he might have loved her before, but that did not matter when he was certain of it now. He trembled a little, fearfully, though without regret. Everything pertaining to his desert experience had been strange. This was the strangest of all. The sun sank swiftly, and instantly there was a change in the golden light, quickly it died out. The girl changed as swiftly. She seemed to remember herself, and sat down as if suddenly weary. Shefford went closer and seated himself beside her. ''The sun is set. We must go,'' she said, but she made no movement. ''Whenever you are ready,'' replied he. Just as the blaze died out of her eyes, so the flush faded out of her face. The whiteness stole back and with it the sadness. He had to bite his tongue to keep from telling her what he felt, to keep from pouring out a thousand questions. But the privilege of having seen her, of having been with her when she had forgotten herself, that, he believed, was enough. It had been wonderful. It had made him love her. But it need not add to the tragedy of her life. Whatever that was, he tried to eliminate himself, and he watched her. Her eyes were fixed, upon the gold-rimmed ramparts of the distant wall in the west. Plain it was how she loved that wild upland, and there seemed to be some haunting memory of the past in her gaze, some happy part of life, agonizing to think of now. "'We must go,' she said, and rose. Shefford rose to accompany her. She looked at him, and her haunting eyes seemed to want him to know that he had helped her to forget the present.' to remember girlhood, and that somehow she would always associate a wonderful happy afternoon with him. He divined that her silence then was a Mormon seal on lips. "'Mary, this has been the happiest, the best, the most revealing day of my life,' he said simply. Swiftly, as if startled, she turned and faced down the slope. At the top of the wall above the village she put on the dark hood, and with it that somber something which was Mormon. Twilight had descended into the valley, and shadows were so thick Shefford had difficulty in finding Mary's bucket. He filled it at the spring and made offer to carry it home for her, which she declined. "'You'll come tonight later?' she asked. "'Yes,' he replied, hurriedly promising. Then he watched her white form slowly glide down the path to disappear in the shadows. Las De Bega and Joe were busy at the campfire. Shefford joined them. This night he was uncommunicative. Joe peered curiously at him in the flare of the blaze. Later, after the meal, when Shefford appeared restless and strode to and fro, Joe spoke up gruffly. "'Better hang around camp tonight.' Shefford heard, but did not heed. Nevertheless. The purport of the remark, which was either jealousy or admonition, haunted him with the possibility of its meaning. He walked away from the campfire under the dark pinions out into the starry open, and every step was hard to take unless it pointed toward the home of the girl whose beauty and sadness and mystery had bewitched him. After what seemed hours, he took the well-known path toward her cabin, and then every step seemed lighter. He divined. He was rushing to some fate. He knew not what. The porch was in shadow. He peered in vain for the white form against the dark background. In the silence, he seemed to hear his heartbeats thick and muffled. Some distance down the path, he heard the sound of hoofs. Withdrawing in the gloom of a cedar, he watched. Soon, he made out moving horses with riders. They filed past him to the number of half a score like a flash of fire the truth burned him mormons come for one of those mysterious night visits to sealed wives shefford stalked far down the valley into the lonely silence and the night shadows under the walls End of chapter seven part two